you bow with me as we pray for the preached word? Our Father and our God, will you open our hearts, make us attentive, help us to realize the promise that you have given that we can put aside our cares and our worries with not only no consequence but with great reward. We pray that you would give our pastor boldness to speak and clarity of mind. We pray that his word would not fall on deaf ears, that we would be attentive and mindful of the great glory and the great gift that you have for us here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As you're taking your seat this morning, you turn with me please to the book of 3 John. If you're still in Revelation, if it's still open there, you just have to go back just a couple of, of books. You'll see the little letter to Jude, and then working your way back to the left, you'll find John's third epistle. I'll be reading in a few moments most of that text. If you're a visitor with us today, you're, you're coming in on the very tail end of of a short series that I've done. I don't know if short still is appropriate. It's, it's grown in length. But I've been looking at the requirements and the responsibilities, the duties of church officers and also church members. And so over the last couple of sermons, we've looked particularly at the requirements and the responsibilities of members. So two sermons ago, that was the responsibilities of members to one another, And then last week, we looked at the responsibilities of members to their pastors. The subject before us today is the duties of members to sister churches, or the duties of church members to other churches. So what we find in the scriptures is both individually and corporately, all the members of GFBC Conroe are obligated. We have a duty to demonstrate our union with Christ by promoting the peace, increase of love, and mutual edification of other true churches of Jesus Christ. See, what's going to happen is we're going to see in the Scriptures that because of our union with Christ, there is a flow there. There's a logical flow that says we also are obligated to be in communion with one another, but it doesn't stop there. We have an obligation to be in communion in very tangible ways with other true churches of Jesus Christ. This might be a newsflash. We are not the only true church. GFPC Conroe isn't the only chosen ones. The Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for his own sake and for his own glory people out of every tribe and nation and tongue and people group. All over the city of Conroe, all over Montgomery County, all over Texas, all over the United States, and all over the world, he has true churches. So I'm going to put this before you in, in three, three brief headings. One is, is what's, the, what's the scriptural foundation? How do we see these duties expressed scripturally? And then secondly, how do we understand these duties? How are these duties expressed historically? I want to show you that I'm, I'm not charting new ground here. I'm not making something up that's new or seeking to impose upon you some obligation that no one's come up with before. And then lastly... There are actually benefits. You know, this is often the case, or always the case, with the commands of Christ. When God commands us to do something, it is not 
without profit to us. There are immediate advantages. There are benefits to us as we obey the commands of Christ. So if you want a shorter outline, think scripture, history, and benefits. Three words, easier to to remember, scripture, history, and benefits. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's word. I'm in John's third letter, this very short letter. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 12. I'll read everything but his final greetings. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for, those bro- for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Uh, As we've done in the last several sermons, because this is somewhat topical in nature, my intent is not to give a thorough exposition of 3 John. But I do want to point out to you some thematic things that are happening here, and then we'll expound upon those themes from other places in Scripture. John is is putting before us a contrast. There's two men, or actually there's three men named here, but the contrast is between two. One is is a faithful leader in a a church named Gaius. The man's name is Gaius, not the church, but his name is Gaius. We don't know anything about Gaius. We don't even know who he is. In fact, that's probably one of the most common, if not the most common name in all the Roman Empire. So it would be like writing a letter to David, or Tom, or to Bill, or to Jim. I mean, just common names, right? So we don't know who Gaius is, but that's that's not the point of the letter. He said, here's a man who's faithful in executing the duties that Christ has given to all of his people, and the contrast is to a man by the name of Diotrephes, who, as John says, likes to put himself first. And what was happening is there were itinerant preachers from other churches. There were pastors from other churches coming in to the church where Gaius was ministering. Gaius was welcoming them and receiving them because that's what Christ had commanded him to do. And then here's Diotrephes, who not only would not do that, he was creating his own silo, creating his own little cultish community. And not only would he not welcome those, he actually was putting out of the church those who wanted to receive them. And one example of such men 
is a man named Demetrius, who had received a good testimony from everyone, and yet, and even from the truth itself, and yet men like him, who were faithful brothers, were not being shown the necessary hospitality and care by the people of God in the place where Diotrephes was ministering. So that kind of sets the table. Here's Have that contrast in your mind. And what John says is there's good and there's evil. There's righteous and there's unrighteous. Those who follow after the Lord in commending and receiving and supporting those who are in the work of the ministry versus those who do not. And those who actually go out of their way to hinder that work. So let's think, first of all, about how the duties of members, church members, to other churches is expressed scripturally. So we have an apostolic command, and we have an example that we see in 3 John. Of course, there are other places in the New Testament that we'll look at as well. And these together, this command and example, provide to us an abiding command for churches to promote communion or fellowship between and among one another actively supporting the work of the ministry in all true churches. See, this this warns us against a kind of sectarian spirit, doesn't it? Not only is GFPC Conroe not the only true church, but it is also not the case that only churches which subscribe to the 1689 Confession of Faith are true churches. There There are many true churches around our land, and we ought to be praying for. And you notice in our in our pastoral prayer that we pray for not only our churches with whom we are in association, but other churches around us, other churches known to us, even other denominations and, and beliefs. We want to pray for all true churches, even those with whom we might have very significant disagreements. And this interchurch fellowship, though, is rooted in the doctrine of Christ's union with the church universal. Now, I'm going to ask you to kind of follow with me logically. We're going to use some sanctified reason as we work through this together. Listen to this. When we think about fellowship between churches and among churches, that fellowship is rooted in a union we have with our triune God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a union with Christ himself, and that union is reflected, first of all, locally, right, in our local church. But it's reflected more broadly than that because... Our Savior is not a polygamist. Our Savior doesn't have many brides. He has one bride. He has one universal true church. Now, that one local or one universal true church is represented and represented physically and tangibly in multiple local expressions of his true church, again, all over the world. But listen to this. Our Lord Jesus so closely identifies with his bride He so closely identifies with his bride that he himself says that anyone who welcomes one of his people is really welcoming him. And the flip side is also true. If you reject one of his true people, who are you rejecting ultimately? Christ. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me. He's speaking to his disciples as he's sending them out. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water in my name, 
because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And we think about that as you read through the Old Testament. You think about the, the great prophets, Isaiah, Elijah, and Jeremiah, and you think, wow, what a great reward they must have in heaven. And Jesus says, the one who gives even a cup of cold water in his name to such a one shares in their reward. It's no small thing, saints, for us to participate in that work. And this is precisely, this is the contrast, once again, that John is making in his epistle between Gaius and Diotrephes. It's a love of Christ versus a love of self. It's a love of good versus a love of evil or wickedness. And John commends Gaius for his, both his practice and his example to the church, receiving, receiving other brothers who are traveling in in exactly the same way that Christ commanded. And he condemns Diotrephes for doing the opposite. So, the apostolic command for fellowship between and among churches is rooted in a, un, in a unity of Christ. See, that's, that's the ground of this. That's the basis. That's the foundation of it, is a union we have in Christ that's shared among those other churches. In fact, Paul draws this out, and this is the passage that we're probably most of us familiar with in Ephesians 5, where Paul's speaking about marriage, but he's building his teaching upon something that he just assumes as fact. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 5, 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Listen to this, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. He just takes, that as a, as, takes it for granted. This is a statement of fact. We are members of Christ's body. Therefore, Paul goes on to say, his conclusion, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, we have such a deep union with Christ, a mystical union, that Paul builds upon that, that cosmic reality, that eternal reality, and says, this is the foundation even for your earthly marriages, that union in Christ. And so as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, which we, we recite each week, we confess a belief in the Holy Catholic Church. Sometimes we have visitors who, who will ask me afterwards, I don't understand that part. What do you mean by Catholic? Well, it's, it's a lowercase c. It just simply means universal. In fact, Rome kind of co-opted that term. The term existed before the Roman church was in existence as we know it today. Catholic just means universal. And so now Rome claims to be the capital C universal church, but it's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But we do believe in a universal church. If you want to study that a little bit further, I would commend to you in our confession. I'm not going to read it, but in, in the first four paragraphs of chapter 26, it, it lays out that doctrine of the church Catholic or universal or invisible, and we can use those terms interchangeably. So the apostolic command for fellowship between and among churches is rooted in the oneness that we have in Christ among those churches. Ultimately, all these churches share the one body of Christ. Because Christ has one bride, he is the head and husband of his one true church. But here's something else that sometimes is overlooked. We absolutely affirm and we believe in the doctrine of the church universal. But do you know, when we get to the New Testament, 
what is most often spoken of and taught about by the apostles is not the church universal, but the church local. The majority of the letters that we have in our New Testament are written to local churches or to individuals representing a local church. So the emphasis in the New Testament is on a particular body of believers and often how that particular body of believers relates to other particular bodies of believers. So, for example, when Paul writes his first letter to the church at Corinth, listen to his introduction. You'll hear, you'll hear both his reference to the church universal, but also to his, his reference to the church local. He's writing to a particular body of believers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. See, you hear that. He's writing to the church in Corinth, one particular place, but also to those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. And yet, the Bible speaks most often of the church as a local expression, as a local congregation. In Galatians 1, In his introduction to that letter, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and to all the brothers who are with me, to the churches, plural, Galatia was a region, to the churches of Galatia. If you were writing such a letter, maybe you would title it to the churches of Montgomery County or the churches of Texas, recognizing that there is one true church expressed in multiple local bodies. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, as our Lord Jesus speaks to his people, he names several individual local assemblies. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Seven distinct congregations. But because of the union that, that each local assembly enjoys with Christ, these local churches then are obligated to seek the welfare of other true churches because they also share the same head. They're ultimately part of the same body, you see. So we ought to seek the mutual welfare of every other true church. And Paul assumes that this is already happening. When he wrote his letter to the Colossian church, he says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. So there's another church just kind of up the road from them. And to Nympha and to the church in her house, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodiceans. And so here, I'm writing one letter to the Laodicean church, and I want you to read that letter. And after you're done reading the letter I wrote to you, Colossians, send that one to Laodicea. So he's assuming there's already a means in place. There's already a formal cooperation between those churches. And from these texts, that we've looked at, as we kind of survey briefly the the New Testament here, here's some things that come out very clearly. One is that God has established one universal church. But secondly, these local individual churches each have their own distinct expression. And thirdly, that these individual and local churches really ought to have a formal relationship with one another to be able to know what's going on in these other churches, to be able to pray for them, and, and to seek their mutual good for the glory of Christ. 
So let's think about this as we kind of zoom back out, as we've looked at this, this study of the church and what are the responsibilities of church members? What are the qualifications of church members? You remember several weeks back, what was the first qualification to be a church member? You had to be a Christian. You had to have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, believed that God has raised him from the dead according to the Scriptures, repented of your sins, be united to Christ by faith. For some of you, perhaps, that's the first step. Before we even think today about communion and, and relationships with other churches, I want to press upon you. Are you in relationship with Christ? Can you say God is my God? Christ is my Savior and Lord. Do you know what it means to be cleansed of your sin? To stand before God with a clear conscience, knowing that all of your debts have been paid. That there is not one stain or spot or wrinkle left in you because Christ has borne that in his own body. And because the perfection of Christ's righteousness, his active and passive obedience, has been imputed to you by faith. And then secondly, for some of you, you you've, you've taken that first step. You've believed the gospel You've been been united to Christ, but you've not taken the next step to be united to him publicly and symbolically in the ordinance of baptism, where where you are united symbolically in that water baptism, demonstrating your union with Christ, not just generally, but specifically in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. Baptism signifies those things. It it is the public declaration that Christ has given to his people. This is how you show publicly that you belong to me. This is how you show that you are are in a relationship with me covenantally by faith. This is why baptism comes after faith, not before. Thirdly, having been united to Christ having demonstrated that public union with him in baptism, we've talked about this over the last few weeks. The next step is to be united to a local church, to declare to all the world, I'm united with this people, not just with Christ only, but with all of his body. And fourth, this is the the next implication for us as a congregation as we think about these things, is what are then, having been united to Christ, having visibly demonstrated that through the ordinance of baptism, having joined ourselves to a local church, what then? We just close the doors, draw the blinds, dig the moat around the church and say we're done, right? No. We have a duty, we have an obligation to seek the peace and welfare and mutual edification of all other churches. So we pray for all of his people in every place and in every church now, what does this fellowship, what does this communion of churches look like in, in practical terms? What, what is, for some of us, for probably most of us, you, you didn't grow up in Reformed Baptist churches who had formal relationships with other churches. You, you've either come from uh, no Christian faith at all, or you've come from a different model of church government that was more hierarchical, had a hierarchy and a superstructure above, above the local church, or you've come, like I did, from local churches that were more radically independent. There really wasn't any duty. There wasn't an obligation. There weren't relationships with other local churches. So you may be asking, as, as, as I once asked, what, what does this look like? How do we exercise this? How do we put this into practice? 
And thankfully, we have a rich heritage from which we can draw. So having looked at the, how these, these relationships are expressed scripturally, I want to look at how this has been expressed historically, and, and especially with our Reformed Baptist heritage. We have a confession of faith that, that articulates these things very clearly, and I think very practically. So I want to look at that next. What are our duties to sister churches as those things are expressed historically? And notice that in the examples that I cited a few moments ago, that the apostles view the churches as separate. They don't mash them in together to one big church with multiple locations. It's not one church in many places, but it's actually multiple local bodies, local churches. So when we think about the example that Paul gives about Colossae and Laodicea, for example, he views them as two separate churches. So the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans, I want you to read that one, Colossians, and the, the letter that I wrote to you, I want you to give to the Laodiceans and have them read it as well. So they exist as two separate and distinct churches, and yet they are interdependent, and they are capable of benefiting one another. As we think about church uh, polity, church government, we can take for granted, especially if you've been in Baptist circles for a while, you, you kind of forget how the rest of the world operates sometimes. And, and in general terms, there are just three uh, forms of church government, and I'm not going to belabor this, but just so you kind of have a point of reference. One is the Episcopal form. This is common in, in of course, the church at Rome or the Anglican church. Uh, United Methodist Churches, Episcopalians, and it's basically it's a top-down hierarchy. There's an organizational chart that would look very similar to your corporate organizational chart. There's somebody, whether it's a pope or a, a bishop or a cardinal that's at the top, and there are offices underneath them and, and all the way down to a local assembly. But all the decisions are made at the top, and they're passed down ultimately to a local church. Well, the other side of that, the other end of that spectrum, is a Presbyterian form which is still hierarchical, but it begins at the bottom. So decisions are made at the local level, but they begin to progress their way up so that you still have a hierarchy existing over those local churches. Well, our, our Baptist fathers came along and, and looking at the Scripture said, neither one of those were quite right. Both of them were common in their day, but neither one of those really met the tests of the Scriptures, where you see an independent and locally autonomous congregation, and yet... They cooperated, not because those other churches had authority over a local assembly, but because they had the, the, the privilege of cooperating joyfully and mutually together. So the Baptist churches historically had no hierarchy. There was no, no authority over or outside of a local church. Uh, the local churches choose all their own leaders, or they remove their own leaders. They welcome their own church membership, or they remove their own church membership. The churches are self-governing. And so there are two extremes to be avoided, if you will. The one is, is giving up Christ's exclusive rule over a local church by submitting to a hierarchy that we don't think exists in Scripture. But the other er error that's equally as common is saying, okay, because we don't want this hierarchy over us, we will not have any relationship at all with other churches. We will take the position, it's nobody else's business what we do, 
It's not our business what anybody else does. Well, that's not quite right either, according to the Scriptures. And, and in the 17th century, Baptist associationalism began to be defined very carefully and profitably. And so I'm going to direct your attention in our confession of faith. You can see this in, in your hymnal, the blue hymnal in your pew, or in the seat back in front of you. There on page 685, there's a copy of our confession. We're going to look at, at paragraph 14 to see how, this thing, how these things were articulated. Paragraph 14 says, as each church, and again, this is speaking about a local assembly, as each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further it, every one within the bounds of their places and callings in the exercise of their gifts and graces. So the churches, when planted by the providence of God, so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. This simply asserts that every local church has a duty, has a formal duty to Christ to hold communion with other churches. And, first of all, to pray continually for the good and prosperity. Now, when we hear the word prosperity, see, we're, we're a little bit infected by the word faith movement, whether we realize it or not, we've all been exposed to that virus. And we're all just a little bit infected. Hopefully we got the antibodies and we can resist that, right? But prosperity doesn't mean their material welfare. It means the increase of their faith. It means the sanctification of their members. So we want to pray. It says we pray weekly for other churches. We're praying for the good and prosperity, the good and the, and the, the holiness, the sanctification, the increase in love within that congregation, in all places, and upon all occasions to further it, and it just simply means good and prosperity. There's an interesting phrase, everyone within the bounds of their places and callings. And here's another example of sometimes the older language can cause us to, to stumble just a little bit. We hear that word boundary, and, and usually we think more geographical. We think more in terms of physical place. But that's not what it's talking about. The older use of the word, the idea of, of places and callings had to do primarily with offices and responsibilities that according to God's providence and, and Christ's sovereign rule of a church, he's established. So it doesn't refer to geography. It refers to positions or even ranks. So here the confession is making an application of what the scriptures have taught in many places the churches are comprised of elders, deacons, and members. Now, of course, elders and deacons are also members of a church, but there are those that God has set apart to serve in particular ways, as deacons or as pastors, elders. And not all members all share the same responsibilities, even with respect to other churches. And not all have equal responsibilities. And by way of office, some have a greater responsibility. Now, you know how this works out in your own home. You're sitting around the dinner table one evening, and there is a quarrel or a squabble that breaks out. I know that doesn't happen in your home. I'm talking about mine. But there's a squabble that breaks out. 
who is responsible at that moment for the peace and increase of love and mutual edification of your home? Well, the answer is everybody in your household, right? Even the youngest of children is responsible for their own participation and their own either contributing to or taking away from the peace and increase of love in the, around that dinner table. But you also would recognize that the parents have a greater responsibility, don't they? To help ensure that and help govern that and help teach and direct that. And then of the parents, the father and husband would have an even greater still responsibility. Well, it's exactly the same kind of principle. Every member of GFBC Conroe is not only corporately, but personally obligated to pray for and to seek the peace, increase, and love and mutual edification of our sister churches. And at the same time, there are those within the congregation by way of office who have a greater duty according to their places and callings. Deacons who are in charge, for example, with tending to the church's purse, overseeing the finances of a church, have a greater duty to lead the church in assisting other ministers and other churches. Now think about the, the example that we see in 3 John. Gaius is, is leading well in his church by welcoming those who are in, in service of Christ, and he's welcoming them, he's receiving them. Well, that certainly would have included, very likely, you know, lodging and meals and, and, and tangible financial things. Well, the deacons in the church with Gaius would have been responsible for administering those things. Gaius had a responsibility, the deacons had a responsibility, and every member had a responsibility to pray for that, certainly. But there may have been other specific opportunities that a creative member would have had to say, how can I help too? How can I serve in these ways? Pastors have the added burden of, of assisting a sister church, perhaps in supplying a pulpit. Perhaps there's a sister church whose, whose pastor is ill. And a, a sister church would have a responsibility to send their own pastor to help in those labors. Maybe to help administer the ordinances while that pastor is, is gone for an extended time that an, an other, other members in the congregation wouldn't have that immediate responsibility, you see. So according to their places and callings, the responsibilities will vary in, in both their kind and, and the degree, but every member has a responsibility to help with that. And when we look at the, the Reformed Baptist or particular Baptist literature, in the 17th century, including what we find in our confession, we see that these, these ideas were expressed not just in, in, a, in a haphazard way, but they began to express them in formal relationships between churches, where the churches would intentionally meet together, pool their resources in certain ways, and help one another. One example of this in in the churches in England in the 17th century, after our confession was published, they established, they called it an assistance fund. And particularly the larger churches in London, the more prosperous churches, were very concerned that the churches outside of London in the more rural areas did not have the necessary means to support a pastor, to provide for his family. So the larger churches said, so let's, let's contribute to a fund as an association so that we can assist those other churches in that very tangible expression of our love 
for them and of their mutual edification and the increase of their love. So that's just one example. And of course, informal relations were, were very common as well, but they sought to make these things formal. And so when we see in our confession, in this language, they ought to hold communion among themselves, this was a description of something very formal. And so this is how the way that we seek to obey this at GFBC Conroe is we are part of two different formal associations, one at our state level, the TARBC, the Texas Area Association of Reformed Baptist Churches, and then also at the national level, our Confessional Baptist Association. And so we seek to live out these principles from God's Word in those ways. And then, of course, we're praying for other churches. And as we have opportunity, we would cooperate with other churches um, in, in particular ways. So I'm convinced from the Scriptures, and I'm convinced from our confession, that both formal and formal, both formal and informal relationships can be profitable. But what is necessary for us to pursue is formal relationships. Those are committed by the Scriptures and by church history. But let's think now about some benefits of this, some very practical things as we think through this. Um, not that we're seeking to, to follow our flesh and we're always going to ask, what's in it for me? That, that ought not to be our, our question first. But we also believe by faith that when Christ has given to his people a command, that there are certainly, they are, those commands are profitable for us. They are good for us. What are the benefits for us as a local church to be formally associated with other true churches? Well, we see, again, from the example from the churches in Colossae and Laodicea. There's something very interesting here. You know, when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossian church, Paul's in prison. And the man that had planted the church in Colossae, and probably the church in Laodicea as well, was, was a man by the name of Epaphras. And what had happened is Epaphras had traveled all the way to Rome to visit Paul in prison. And his motive was certainly to visit Paul and encourage him, but also there were false teachings in and around his churches that he was very concerned about. And he, and he sought apostolic advice and help and how to deal with those things. And part of the answer to that was Paul wrote a letter to both churches and asked that they share the letter with one another and cooperate together. So one of the benefits we have with associationalism is a doctrinal instruction and mutual accountability. A doctrinal instruction and a mutual accountability. As we labor side by side and in association with other churches, we have the benefit of guarding our own doctrine. You have the benefit as a member of, of having your, your pastor sharpened by those discussions and by those deliberations and by the practices of other churches. The other thing we have, the other benefit that's related to this is that churches can actually help guard one another against the errors of false teachers. Because as... John speaks about Diotrephes. Diotrephes was maybe not a false teacher in the strictest sense, but he was a false practicer, if I can make up a word. He was falsely applying the commands of Christ. In fact, he was obeying and, or, or disobeying and neglecting the commands of Christ. And John says, when I come, I'm going to discuss this with the church and other churches. See, 
we have the ability within a formal association to mark those who cause divisions. That's Titus chapter 3. Having warned someone once who's a false teacher, warned someone twice who's a heretic, have nothing more to do with them. Mark them and have nothing more to do with them. An association of churches gives us the necessary vehicle. If there's a false teacher who, who comes to Conroe and makes problems among our members, we have the ability to say, you know what, we're going to mark this guy and let the other churches know about it or her. There's also the added benefit of being able to cooperate together in missions. You know, one of the things that, that tends to happen and you've, you've t- no doubt taken note of this. When some of the largest churches in the Houston area, and we're kind of known for large churches, but some of the largest churches in Houston preach the heresy of word-faith movement. They love to tickle ears. They love to promise things the Scriptures do not promise. And the effect of that can be a a sense of discouragement for those churches who are preaching faithfully the whole counsel of God's Word, and we haven't bought out an NBA stadium to house our vast numbers. Reformed Baptist congregations tend to be smaller. Uh, False doctrine tends to draw big crowds. But our Lord was pretty plain that It is a broad road that leads to destruction, and it's a narrow road that leads to life. And so one of the the effects of being a small church is you also have smaller resources, don't we? However, by being part of an association of churches, we have the opportunity to to pool those resources. And so the the prospect of planting a church all by ourselves can be financially daunting, can't it? because we, we don't have the money. We don't have the resources to do something like that, but we, we, we might have those opportunities cooperating with other churches. In our national association, we're looking at three different church plant possibilities right now in, in Wichita Falls, Texas, in Belton, Texas, and in uh, just down the road from MIT and Harvard in Boston, <laughs> behind enemy lines, in the belly of the beast. Wonderful opportunities that that none of our churches individually would be able to do. But working together, these are things that by God's grace we we can accomplish. Supporting missionaries in foreign lands, local church missions, church planting. The other advantage, and we see this here in 3 John, one of the things that he's dealing with is an abuse of pastoral authority. Diotrephes Diotrephes is an abuser. He's spiritually abusive. We, we go back and says, uh, look at 3 John. Not only does Diotrephes refuse to welcome the brothers, he also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. He's excommunicating people who've not sinned. That is spiritual abuse. And, and one of the, the goals, one of the purposes of an association is to prevent Spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse can happen in two different ways, at least. One is a pastor abusing the congregation, imposing upon them rules and laws and decrees that God hasn't done, God hasn't said. But it can go the other way around, too. Congregations can spiritually abuse their pastors, which also needs to be guarded against. And an association can be a great help in those ways. 
There's another thing I think we see in, in Colossians chapter 4 that is, I think, fascinating. It's, 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 um, Paul makes this statement. He mentions a man by the name of Archippus. And he says to the church in, Coloss- in Colossae, he said, Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, what's this about? We have the opportunity associationally to cooperate in the training and encouragement of men for the ministry. See, remember, Epaphras has left the church that he serves and traveled to Rome. Now, he didn't go down to the local airport and catch a flight and fly to see Paul and back by noon the next day. This would have been months of travel. And the young man that stood in his stead to pastor that church was was a young man named Archippus. And you think about the, if you read through the book of Colossians, you will see that Paul makes, he gives, he, he just heaps up accolades upon Epaphras. Epaphras was a faithful man. Imagine being a young man coming in and trying to fill those shoes. Trying to stand in that shadow. And Paul writes to the church at Colossae and also says, by the way, send this letter to Laodicea, and I want all of you to say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. These are profound words. Paul is saying to the church, to these two churches together, you have the opportunity to encourage a young man in the ministry. William Hendrickson makes this observation about Archippus. He says, since Archippus was too, was like Timothy, and probably rather young and somewhat diffident, wondering perhaps whether the church would give him, a man so inexperienced, its full cooperation in this important work, the apostle very tactfully orders the congregation itself to encourage him by saying to him, as it were, go right ahead, we are with you, and we promise to help you in every way. The task you were trying to perform was given to you by the Lord, and you were discharging it with strength imparted by him. Hence, attend to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. So Paul's saying, and the words he uses are plural. We were to translate this into text, and we would say, y'all say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. So Paul's writing this to at least two different churches. And so we can apply this in this way. GFPC Conroe, y'all say to David Bain, who preached here just a few weeks ago. GFPC Conroe, y'all say to Julius Santiago, who preached here just a few weeks ago, see that you fulfill the ministry to which God has called you. See, within the context of an association, we have the ability as congregations to encourage men who are trying to get their feet under them for the first time in pastoral ministry. And I can tell you firsthand, that is a hard thing to do. You, you will never find me, not, not by my own will, serving upon an ocean vessel. I, if you find me there, you'll know me. I'll be the one hanging over the rail, losing everything I've eaten for the last week. It, 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 but even experienced sailors know it takes a while to get your, you heard the phrase, get your sea legs under you, to get used to the rhythm and the motion well, I can tell you, pastoral ministry is kind of like that. And I spend a lot of time hurling over the edge. But there's a necessity of having other congregations around you encouraging you. Say, stick to it. Don't give up. 
The Lord has called you to this. We see those gifts. We see those graces. We want to encourage you in that, that work. Sometimes that's just simply verbally. We're going to pray for you. And every, again, every one of you, not just the church as a whole, but every individual member is responsible in these ways. You're responsible to Christ because of your union with him. And because of your union with him, you have a union with every other child of God and every other true church. And you have that opportunity to be a great encouragement to those who are new, who are starting out, who are trying to get their sea legs under them in pastoral ministry. Let's think about some other very practical benefits quickly. It's an encouragement in trials. If you've been a Christian very long, if you've been a church member very long, you know it's not a matter of if. It's when do trials come upon a church. Those trials can come in different ways. Uh, sometimes it's, it's, it's political, it's, it's, it's persecution, sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's, it's sickness that has infected a body in many ways. Sometimes it is it's false teaching. Sometimes it's conflict within and among the members. And an association can be great encouragement in trials. I remember the very first time I attended a Tarby C meeting. It was the day before Bella was born. And I was, was overwhelmed as we sat there for the first two hours in prayer. As one by one by one, each church gave a brief report about what the goings-on and some of the challenges they were facing. Something as ordinary as what they're teaching in, in, in Sunday school or in, in the worship service and preaching, but also here are the particular challenges. We've lost several members, or we've had this conflict, or we've, we've praised the Lord that we've gained several members, we've had a lot of visitors, or we haven't seen a visitor in months. And it was such a great encouragement to my soul to hear, in many ways, we're not the only ones. I call, I refer to it as the Elijah syndrome. You find yourself sitting under the tree saying, Lord, I'm the only one. I'm the only faithful one. Well, that can happen not only to an individual, but to a church, can't it? If we so isolate ourselves, we can become convinced as a church, number one, we're the only, we, number one, we're the only faithful one. But in, in the moments of trials, we can also convince ourselves we're the only church who's ever had this problem. You know, I tell young people, Young, young men and women as they're going through the pre-marriage process, we're going through pre-marriage counseling and all that, and the, and the necessity, the absolute necessity of plugging yourself in to a local body of believers and to be among other married folk, not ones who've been married like you for a month, but people who've been married for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, who can help you avoid the Elijah syndrome. Because you will think to yourself, I'm the only one whose husband is a fool. I'm the only one whose wife is crazy. And being around other seasoned married people, you have a more honest perspective, don't you? You want a godly older saint to say, sweetie, that's normal. And you'll grow past this. You'll grow through this. You will survive together as you lean into Christ. Well, the same happens at a, at a church level. Where we as a church, as we face challenges, we face trials, and to be among other faithful churches who can say, yeah, we've been through that too. And you have no idea how faithful God was to bring us through that, to make us more unified on the other side, to make us closer to him and ever more dependent upon him. We need the testimony of, of, to use the analogy, more seasoned saints who've been married longer to come around us and say, it's going to be all right. Stick to Christ. 
Hold fast to his word. Don't compromise your doctrine. And Christ is faithful. There's also very tangible help in conflict. I'm not going to expound on this, but I'm going to read this briefly in our confession again. This is the very next paragraph in chapter 26. In cases of difficulties or differences, either in point of doctrine or administration. You see, there's four different possibilities. Difficulties or differences in doctrine or administration, wherein either the churches in general are concerned or any one church in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings and censures not agreeable to truth and order. It is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about that matter indifference to be reported to all the churches concerned. So imagine this scenario. We don't have to imagine it. John gives it to us. Here's Diotrephes. He was abusing people in his church. He is overreaching in his spiritual authority. He's putting people out of the church because they wanted to host a traveling missionary. Our fathers in the faith, I think, wisely said that it's according to the mind of Christ that other churches could come around this. Hear the case of that dear brother and sister who Diotrephes had put out. Hear their, their testimony. And then be able to report to all the other churches that Diotrephes has overreached. Diotrephes is in sin. Diotrephes does not have the authority that he pretends to exercise. So this shows to us that Christ is concerned not only about a church in general, but every individual member of it is so precious to our Savior. If you're in Christ, hear this. If you're in Christ, you are individually are so precious to him that he's willing to command all of the churches to band together just to protect you. And also, every individual church is so important to him that he's willing to command all the churches to band together to protect that one church that's struggling in a particular way, to help them. Again, we can use the analogy of our home. Sometimes we have a conflict in our homes. And most of the time, those are conflicts we deal with in our homes. We sort it out, we deal with that. But there are times when we're at an impasse and we need someone else within the body of Christ, someone else to come along and help mediate or help to, to reconcile. Sometimes that's between a husband and a wife, and, and, and a pastor or other godly men and women can come in and help them to see themselves accurately. And so a husband and wife can be reconciled. Other times it's, it's two siblings or something else, and, and others can come in and, and help with that. So it is within the body of Christ. But here's an important caveat. The last portion of this statement in our confession, howbeit, or however, these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so-called. See, Christ is given only to a local church church power. The ability to call officers, the ability to welcome members, the ability to put members out or to remove officers. No other entity on the planet has that authority. Only a local church or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures, that means excommunication, over any churches or persons, or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. So in other words, take the, the example of Diotrephes. The churches in communion together meet together. 
the messengers hear everything and say, it's our, it's our agreement that Diotrephes is out of line. But that association would not have the authority to remove Diotrephes from office. They could present the evidence, the facts, to that local assembly because Christ has given only that local assembly to remove their own elder, to remove their own pastor, or to remove any other member of the congregation. So the association has the authority to advise, but not the authority to remove or exercise censure. So it helped in conflict in very tangible ways. And lastly, it's an, it's an opportunity for individual members to exercise your own gifts. So as, as you individually and corporately, you pray for other churches. And, and as you hopefully will eagerly hear reports about our Texas associational meetings, for example. We meet quarterly. Our National Assembly meets once a year. As you hear about those reports, I hope you will pray. But I hope you will also pay attention to needs that are expressed, and maybe you have a skill, you have an ability, you have a talent that other churches might profit from. Something as ordinary as helping build a website or helping with social media or other, other things that, that you have skills, and, hey, I can help with that. I can be happy to do that and serve other churches in those ways. And by doing so, your own gifts are sharpened and, and grow. But the other thing that, as I mentioned, the Elijah syndrome, I think another application here, another benefit, because we tend to be smaller congregations, Sometimes our own children growing up grow up thinking, my parents are the only weird ones. My church is the only weird church. And being involved in, in an association of churches helps as an antidote to that kind of thinking. That even your own children, as they grow, and they look around and think, well, where am I going to find a husband? Where am I going to find a wife? Um, I already know everybody in my church, and there's not a good candidate here. And we're a smaller body, and maybe that's not going to happen. You have the opportunity to look outside of that through an association of churches, but still know, I'm going to be, here's a, here's a pool of prospective spouses that hold to the same confession, hold to the same faith, practice in the same way, worship in the same way. And what a blessing uh, that could be. It's not a promise, but there's a possibility there. And a great blessing to us as a congregation to see even our children cultivating that, that kind of thinking and thinking about, I want to marry someone of like faith. It's, it's unlawful to marry someone who's not a Christian. But it might be unwise to marry someone who's a Christian, but who has wildly different beliefs, different practices. So let's think through this. The duties of sister churches, as is expressed scripturally, the duties of members to sister churches, as has been practiced uh, historically and particularly among our Reformed Baptists, and the benefits of, of members, benefits to you, as you and your church body seek to cultivate these kinds of relationships with other churches. And I hope, just by way of, of application, that you will pray, and pray especially for our association, and pray for our associational churches, for TARBC and CBA, uh, pray for RBS. Uh, pray for our seminary, the Institute or the International Reformed Baptist Seminary. Pray for the work going on there as you have opportunity while you're traveling or vacationing. Make it a point to visit. If you can go out of your way a little bit, visit some of our associational churches. Get to know them. 
if you have opportunity to, to attend any of our meetings as an association, I'll just say this, any of you are welcome. It's not restricted to pastors. There's no swipe card that you have to, to a key card to get in the meetings. You're welcome to come. Uh, men and women are welcome to be there and, and, and observe for yourself the kind of communion that, that goes on in these, in these associations. This is not a pastor's fraternal. This is an association of churches. Pray for opportunities to serve the body of Christ in the use of your own gifts. And as we have men come from time to time, either from our seminary or from other sister churches, and, and preach, take the time to get to know them. Uh, pray for them. Uh, encourage them. As you see, particularly these young men come through, will you do as Paul commanded the church with regard to Archippus? Encourage them in their labors. Encourage them in their ministries. And then pray for me as I represent our local church at many of these meetings. Uh, pray, pray for me for wisdom. Pray for us as a congregation that we will grow together in these things. I look forward next Lord's Day uh, to kind of a, a long-awaited, uh, or at least from my perspective. Um, we're starting the book of Mark. So if you'd like to read ahead, we're beginning the, the book of Mark, and this will be uh, going through the entire book, um, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, going back to our ordinary pattern of exposition of particular blocks of Scripture rather than we've had kind of a topical hiatus here as we've looked at the church life, the duties and responsibilities and qualifications of members and deacons and elders. So look forward to working through the Gospel of Mark together beginning next week. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your steadfast love and faithfulness to your people. We are grateful that you have made yourself known to us, that you've called us out of darkness and into light, that you've not set us on an island alone, that you have granted to us the privilege and, and, and indeed given us a command to seek fellowship and association and communion with other true churches. And I pray that that would serve to our benefit, to our profit, and, and most of all, that it would be to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ as we intentionally together seek the peace and increase in love and mutual edification of all other true churches. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.